said, well, now, what was a deist? And what is a deist? Look it up in your dictionary. A deist is a man who believes that there is a personal God. And that God, sometime back yonder, we do not have a record of it, created things. They believe in the God of creation. But they also believe that when he finished his creation, he just simply said, I'm going to turn it over to man and let man run it and be responsible for it and do what needs to be done. And that's about the only God that they have. They're called deist. I understand that Thomas Jefferson was a deist. I believe that Washington, D.C. is filled with deists. They're quite quick to call on God when they really stand in need of him. But little do they know that God was in flesh and his name was the Lord Jesus Christ. This last week we heard one individual just thanking God and thanking God generally the name of God. And I looked over at my wife. She was watching the same program. I said, not one time has he mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ. And my dear friends, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no God. Because he created it all himself. Now, I hope you have your Bibles. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. If we're not Deanists, what do we believe? We believe in a sovereign, personal God that takes care of everything that needs to be done and he never makes a mistake. He's always right. He's the authority. More than just a creator, he's a supervisor. He is one who not only creates, but he knows how to run his creation. He's been doing a pretty good job, wouldn't you think? Wish Adam were here today, present, so he could tell us what a good job the Lord has done. All right, we're talking about the sovereignty of God, and I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Would you please? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The Bible begins this way. In chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, and Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There's none holy as the Lord. There's none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken. They that stumble are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. They that were hungry cease, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth. Mm. What do you think about that, folks? The Lord killeth and maketh alive. 
He bringeth down to the grave. He bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Could I just tack verse 11 on there? And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house. And the child, referring to the baby, Samuel, did minister unto the Lord before Eli, the priest. I want to speak on the subject, the operations of sovereignty. The operations of sovereignty. How does God operate? Or does he even operate at all? Is he, as the deist has professed and said, maybe God just got tired and creating and, and he just doesn't do anything now. How does God operate? Last week we brought the first in this series on the sovereignty of God with the proclamation of sovereignty. How that God's sovereignty is clearly manifested around us in many ways, he manifests his sovereignty in his decrees, in his providence, in his scripture, in his name, and in his creation. They all proclaim the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely sovereign. In this message, I want us to think about the operations of God's sovereignty. Our scripture setting has to do with Hannah bringing the child Samuel to the temple that she had prayed for on a previous visit, and God had heard her prayer. Matter of fact, you're really not ready to read chapter 2 until you read chapter 1 of, of, of 1 Samuel. There was a certain man of Ramathium, Zotham, of Mount Ephraim. His name was Elkanah. He was the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and a Rephathite. <clears throat> and he had two wives. Said he had two wives. <laughs> he had a problem and he didn't even know it. Isn't that amazing? He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. And to make a long story short, she spent her time, Panina did, trying to make Hannah feel badly because she was bearing and could not have children. She was called worthless. She was taking up space in the home because Panina had several children, but Hannah could have no children. 
And when it came time for Elkanah to take his family up to Shiloh to worship the Lord, they would do it through tithes and through offerings and through multiplied differences in service. They rendered to the Lord. Uh, Hannah, she had this burden of a baby, wanting it more than anything else in the world. And so she started praying after they got up to Shiloh. And Elihu marked, Eli, the priest, I'm sorry, marked her mouth. He tried to read her lips because he wasn't close enough to hear what she was saying, so he thought he would figure it out by just reading her lips. Now, verse 13 of chapter 1, Hannah spake in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Now, just because the preacher says it doesn't mean it's so. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, Eli was as wrong as he could be in the conclusion he drew after watching, trying to figure out what Hannah was talking about. And Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. And Eli answered and told her, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. What was she asking for? Something she did not have and could not have. Apart from God's miraculous intervention, she wanted a baby. She wanted a baby. And so she prayed. And you know what? She had the child. The Bible says in verse 22 of chapter 1, Hannah went not up. That is, on this second trip back up to Shiloh, she did not go with her husband. She said, I'll not go up until this child be weaned, and then I'll bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. She said, I want to give him back to God. Did you know that's a premise for faith promise giving? Lord, I don't have anything to give to missions, but if you'll give it to me, I'll give it back to you. And dear church, you'd be surprised at the millions and billions of dollars have been raised through faith promise missions of people who did not have it to give, but they trusted God would give it to them. And when God gave it to them, they turned right around and gave it back to the Lord. And the scripture says in verse 24 that Samuel, the child, was young. And in verse 27, this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I have asked of him. Therefore have I lent him, and there in the King James, they use the word lent as I've returned him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be returned to the Lord. And he worshiped, that is, Samuel worshiped the Lord there. And notice verse 1 Chapter 2 says, and Hannah prayed. And Hannah prayed. Have you noticed that whatever she says about God in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 2, she says rejoicing. 
She's not complaining about it. She said, now, Lord, I'll believe a little bit about you, but don't, don't stuff this sovereignty down my throat. I, I get tired of hearing it. She was rejoicing over it, and she tells you why. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. She hadn't rejoiced in a long time. But now she's rejoicing not in Samuel, not so much over the baby Samuel, not even that Eli said, God's going to give you what you ask for. But she said, my rejoicing is in the Lord. The object of her praising was not man, but it was directed to God that had given her what she had asked for. My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies. She's thinking about Penina. Now, Penina had been running the mouth all this time, telling her how sorry she was, but she said, now I can rejoice in the Lord because my horn has been exalted. My horn. Now, the Hebrew word for horn is K-E-H-R-E-N. That's the pronunciation of it, Karen. It's spelled with a Q, Q-E-R-E-N. And literally, it means a horn as a cornet. It means a horn like the instrument of a trumpet. My horn doth magnify the Lord. But figuratively, now you've got to get this. It means a mountain peak or a ray of light. One of the many prayers of David was like this, I lift up mine eyes unto the hills, unto the mountain peaks, from which cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. Hannah was completely helpless. She couldn't change her situation, but she said, I'll rejoice in the Lord. And when I start rejoicing in the Lord, my horn for him will rejoice. It will grow bigger. The horn of my salvation. Now, in Psalm 7510, jot the reference down. All the horns, and I have in parentheses, hope. All of the horns or hope of the wicked shall be cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Sometimes the horn of the righteous gets dirt on it. And when it does, we lose our joy. Thank God we never lose our salvation. But we lose the joy of the Lord. David lost the joy of the Lord. He said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Because he got dirt on the horn of his salvation. So much so that he couldn't see his salvation any longer. All he could see was the dirt that was covering it up. Hannah had dirt poured on her horn of salvation by the constant disagreement from Panina, who continually harassed her and berated her and talked ugly to her 
and made her feel like she was absolutely nothing. But when she prayed and God heard her prayer, she said, I rejoice in the Lord, the horn of my salvation. Job 16, verse 15, you know what David said? Pardon me, Job said, Job said, I have sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my horn in the dust. Now, what was Job's problem? Job's problem was he's listening to too many commentaries. He was listening to those people who claimed to be his friends and they were telling him he was nothing but a hypocrite. And much of the book of Job is the interchange verbally between Job and his so-called friends. It wore him out. And you really don't see the real horn of Job's salvation until you get over to verse chapter 30 uh, in the chapters 30, the latter part of Job. And, and God comes on the scene and says, Job, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I accomplished this? And so here Hannah is rejoicing in the horn of her salvation. Another meaning of that word horn is a mountain peak or a ray of light. It's all of a sudden being able to see something you've never seen before. And it is so good. It is so absolutely fantastically good that people think you've gone bonkers. Huh? Well, what's wrong with you? You're just rejoicing in your salvation, in the horn, in the horn in this new ray of light. I did not start, I did not begin preaching and teaching the doctrines of grace until 1983. That's been a long time ago. That's been a long, and have not stopped preaching it since God showed it to me because it has been such a bolster to my hope I don't care how bad the days might get, my dear friend, and I care not how long the nights might come. It does not affect the horn of my salvation that God's in charge. And that's the reason why this precious lady, Hannah, could pray with such joy, the Lord killeth. Praise God for that. Isn't that good? Some people think you'd be a sadist if you said and made a statement like that. Well, I'm here to tell you, my dear friends, that God does kill some people. And God makes some people alive. And a list of other things that God does detail his operational aspect. How does God run things? Do you like the way God runs things? That's what we're talking about this morning. <clears throat> I want to raise a question. What principle or power causes things to occur? I mean, something's always happening, isn't it? Something's always happening somewhere. The question is, what principle or power causes things to occur? In other words, who runs this world? Who runs it? For every effect. There's a cause. What is the cause? Some say it's Mother Nature. They do, yeah. 
You say, what's wrong with them? They're stupid. They believe Mother Nature does it. What is Mother Nature? It's a fixed law which says that everything that happens has a natural reason and can be naturally explained. No, it cannot be naturally explained. I run into things most every day I can't figure out to save my life what the spiritual value of it is. But it doesn't mean there's no spiritual value. It just means I'm dumb and I haven't gotten there yet. Some say not only is it just Mother Nature, some say that it's impersonal fate. Or fate did that. Things just happen for no reason at all. By using tarot cards and fortune tellers and crystal balls and horoscopes, one can find out their fate. Some say it's luck. It is bad, the thing that happens, if it is bad, then bad luck caused it. If it's good, then good luck caused it. Have you ever heard that said before? Now, don't answer this. Have you ever said it before? Y'all have good luck. What is that? It's paganism. Almighty God is the first cause. There were no causes before Almighty God. Nothing caused God to do anything. Okay? The Bible says in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, to begin with, God created the heaven and he created the earth. And he goes on with a list of things that fall under his creative ability. Since there was no one or nothing around to cause God, then God must be the first cause of everything. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Have you ever wondered why God made so many of us ugly? He got pleasure in it. Of course, a whole lot of other people have gotten pleasure in it too, isn't it? Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Not a millennial kingdom years ahead, looking one day when Christ shall return, but God controls his kingdom. He runs his kingdom, and he runs it from heaven. With whom did God take counsel over his creation? Good question. There were no educators. There were no scientists. There were no instructors of physics. There were no professors. There were no influences. There were no humans. There were no causes. There was nothing. I have a friend in heaven, and I heard him preach before he went to heaven, his name is Scott Richardson, 
and I wrote a quote that he said down on paper, and I related to you. Scott Richardson says, if God wants to make something else and runs out of nothing, he'll just make some more nothing. God is the first cause of all things. God does not cause sin. That's an entirely different thing. We cannot and do not have the time to get into that aspect. But God rules over his creation. He's the first cause. God rules over the elements. When we think about the elements, we reduce it basically to three things. Water, wind, and fire. They're called elements of creation. In Genesis chapter number 1, if you take a moment to look at it quickly, Genesis chapter number 1, talking about water. Look at verse 7 and verse 9 and verse 11. This little phrase, it was so. Verse number 7, God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Verse number 9, God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Look at verse number 11. God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. Isn't it something? When God started out creating, it was so. It wasn't so till he did, but after he got through, it was so. That's how it got here. God did that. He rules over the elements, the elements of water. I noticed in Genesis chapter 6, verse number 17, God was speaking to Noah, and he said, I do bring a flood. Let me give that to you, actually, in Genesis chapter 6, verse number 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, Wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die from water, from drowning. God creates water. He rules over the elements of water. In Matthew 5, 45, the Lord sendeth rain upon the just and the unjust alike. Where does it come from? The Lord sends it. He, he sends it. It may come in the form of refreshing showers or it may come in the form of frog chokers. But however it comes, God sends it. God sends it. Wind. What about wind? Exodus fourteen twenty one. There's a statement there made a strong east wind. Notice in that passage, Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind. 
I do not understand why most of the time, most of the time, whenever the wind blows, it doesn't come in from the east. It comes from the north. It comes from the south. It comes from a westerly direction. But God sent a special kind of wind that blew and dried up the Red Sea so the children could walk through it and not get their feet wet. And not a one of them drowned. God did that. He controlled the water and turned the water into dirt. Even the disciples were astonished when they were crossing the Sea of Galilee and they said concerning what Christ had done, even the wind and the waves obey him. He's God over the water. He's God over the wind. He's also God over fire. The fire. In Genesis chapter 19 verse 24. The Lord rained fire down on Sodom. You know why he rained fire down on Sodom? Because of Sodom. You know what our nation is guilty of today? Sodomy. And they're teaching it in every conceivable manner they possibly can. First of all, there are no such thing as men. And there are no such thing as women. But you have sodomy. You don't have men with men because we don't know what men are. And you can't have women with women because you, you don't know what women are. And on and on and on to child abuse and all the ungodly, rotten sexual crimes and sins that are being committed today. God destroyed that and called it an abomination. And God has not changed his mind about that. We're talking about fire. In Psalm 18, verses 13 through 14, the Lord also thundered in the heavens and the highest gave his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them and he shot out lightnings and discomforted them. In Psalm 135, verse 7, He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. He's over the wind. He's over the fire. He's over the water. It does exactly what he wants it to do, where he wants it to do, and how long he wants it. Brother, how long he wants it to last. Sometimes these ice storms, they just hang around for quite a while. These dear folk are from Michigan today. And so good to have them again in our services this morning. God rules over the animal creation. You cannot, <laughs> you cannot always predict what your dog will do. God already knows. God rules over the animal creation. In Genesis chapter number 6, an amazing passage of scripture. Genesis chapter 6 verses 19 through 20. 
In building the ark, God is giving some precautions. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Okay? He's bringing these animals into the ark. No, not necessarily. Read on verse 20. Of the fowls after their kind, cattle after their kind, every creeping thing on the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee. They didn't have to get a dog catcher to go get them. They just all came to Noah, who was building the ark. Now you figure that one out. The deist doesn't want to go there. God rules over the animal creation. Was it not to Elijah who was worried about his next meal because of a famine in the land? And God said, don't worry. I have commanded the ravens to feed thee. And I tell you, folks, the ravens about have a monopoly on the food anyway. Have you ever seen buzzards? Have you ever seen falcons? Have you ever seen... Uh, crows. Uh, I used to work for a drug distribution center here in the city of Tyler. And many, many times I saw crows standing with a paper plate in their beak on the side of the road wanting a handout. And God tells his servant here that uh, <laughs> I've commanded the raven. I've commanded the ravens. They didn't like the idea, but I told them they're going to do it anyway. I've commanded the ravens to feed thee. Jonah's fish was made up to swallow. And he was, but he's also made to spit up. How do you believe that God did that? God rules over angelic creation. Brother Phil has been teaching doing some great, great teaching on the subject of the devil. Where did he come from? What kind of a devil is he? And so forth and so on. Previously, before being Lucifer, the archangel, before being that, uh, rather, Satan and, and the archangel, uh, before the fall, he was an anointed cherub of God. God rules over angelic creation. 1 Kings twenty two nineteen. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on the right hand and on the left. You see, God made angels. He made archangels. He made cherubims. He made seraphims. They all differ in rank, authority, and position, yet they all stand ready to do God's bidding. How? How so? Because they believe in the sovereignty of God. Psalm 103, verses 20 through 21. Bless the Lord, you his angels, that excel in strength and do his commandments. Hearken unto the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his host, you ministers of him that do his pleasure. You remember Christ told Simon Peter that he could put up his sword 
that he did not need a bodyguard, that all he had to do was talk to the Father, and the Father would send him 12 legions of angels that quickly. And a legion being 6,000, thousands and thousands of angels were standing around waiting to be called on by the Lord Jesus Christ to fight his battles for him. He never used a one of them. That is to do that. He took care of suffering, becoming sin for us who knew no sin. But the point being is angels still exist today. And the purpose of angels is to do the will of the sovereign God who made them. Now let's get a little bit closer. God ruleth over human creation. God ruleth over human creation. In Acts chapter 17 verse 28, this was spoken to the heathen on Mars Hill. And it involves saved and unsaved alike. It involves all races, all classes, all ages. Either God rules Man or man rules God. Take a moment to look at some references quickly in Proverbs number 16. The book of Proverbs chapter number 16 verse number 1. The preparations of the heart in man. The preparations of the heart in man. And the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Also in Proverbs 16, verse number 9, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Have you ever wondered when you booked a flight, all of a sudden at the last minute they call you and tell you you can't fly because it's packed out? And you get mad and curse God for about two or three days there because it's not there. And the plane crashed and everybody aboard died except you because you didn't get your way. Isn't he a wonderful God? He knows what he's doing. And in Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, the dice is cast onto the, the table, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. We don't have to have a King Jack running the gambling table. God turns the dice as they're pitched where he wants the dots to show up. You say, well, I've always believed the Bible. You have a hard time with that, don't you? The more you get into the sovereignty of God, the less you practically believe the Bible because you say, I just don't understand that. You never will understand the sovereignty of God. But it's real. In Proverbs 19, verse number 21, the Bible says there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. That's the thing that's going to take place. And in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water he turneth it whithersoever he goeth. Who does? God does.
There was a man spoken of in Luke chapter 12. He's called Rich Man. And he made some plans one day. He said, now, Lord, I've got so much coming in. The harvest is so great. The fields are producing so rapidly. I don't have anywhere else to put all my vegetables. Aren't you glad that the capsule people had not come along by then? They were saying, now, Lord, all, the man, all he needs to do is get him some uh, fruit and some vegetables and put in capsules. And boy, you put a lot of fruit in capsules like that. Wouldn't work, would it? But you know what? That same man, he never got to execute his plan. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down the little barns and build bigger barns. And he died before he could do it. God told Jonah to go. And Jonah is pretty good, strong evidence that Jonah was a Baptist. Because when God told Jonah to go, Jonah said, no. Don't believe so, Lord. I prayed about this. Listen, you don't have to pray about what God plainly said in his word. You don't do that. If you want to know what God wants, read your Bible. You don't need to pray about it. Somebody said, well, I'll tell you what, I would give money to the church if God would just move upon my... Just read your Bible. Point being, though, even though Jonah said no, he went. <laughs> did he? Sure he did. And he preached what God told him to preach. Yet 40 days and none of us shall be overturned. The men of Babel wanted to build a tower. Really, they haven't stopped building. That's what Washington's all about. They're always building a tower. Now, it's going to cost you a few more dollars, but in the long run, you're going to wake up a millionaire. And they started building this tower, and they called it Babel, and they wanted to go to heaven anytime they wanted to. They can come back to earth anytime they wanted to, like an elevator. That's what they wanted with the temple of Babylon and the people of Babylon and the tower of Babel. Were they any more guilty than we are today? When we reserve certain Sundays and say, Now, Lord, Easter Sunday's coming up. You can count on me. I'll be there. But the rest of the time, I'm not going to be there. I want a time to go up there. I want a time to come back and be back on earth. Now, that was going along pretty good until one of them called for a hammer, and he'd never heard of a hammer before in his life. One of them called for a working tool to help build that tower and God confused their language. They didn't even know what they were talking about. And that's how God put a halt on it. He just stopped it. Can God do that? Well, sure he can do that. Absolutely. Balaam, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel you know what happened when he opened up his mouth? A blessing came out. He said, where did that come from? 
God did that. And then finally, God rules over death. God rules over death. I do not advise you taking a nap on a railroad track and saying, well, God's sovereign. If I'm to go by a train, I mean, this is it. This is how you do it. You don't have to help God out. He'll take care of that. Don't be a fatalist. Don't say just because God is absolutely sovereign, I'm just supposed to sit on the front porch of my house and do absolutely nothing. You'll do nothing and go to hell for it. Sure you will. Because the Bible says it's given unto men once to repent. To repent. You have to repent. But nonetheless, God rules over death. God appoints men once to die. Okay? Yet Enoch died not. They wondered where was he? Well, they didn't know. But the scripture tells us that he walked with God and God took him, but he didn't take his life. And yet the Bible says Lazarus not only died once, Lazarus died twice. Take a moment and we'll close with this in Isaiah chapter 38, verses 1 through 6. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord. Now I do believe that God spoke to Isaiah and told him what to say, and Isaiah was a clarion call for God. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, set your house in order for you're going to die and not live. And Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days 15 years. One minute, the declaration, you might as well Sign your will over because it's over with. You're going to die. And then, no, you're going to live 15 more years. Look, if I were to live five minutes more, it's five minutes more than I deserve. And if you, my dear friends, were to live a long, protracted life, that's more than you deserve. But I can tell you this, your life is in the hand of a sovereign God And you don't ever have to worry about shocking the Lord when you die. Well, God never figured on that, did he? He he did more than figure on it. He planned it. And there's a time and there's a place of death for every one of us. And it'll happen in God's way, in God's time, for God's pleasure and God's purpose. 
because we believe in a sovereign God. He either runs everything or he doesn't run anything. And it's not 50% you're sovereign and 50% he's sovereign. My dear friends, you can't have two sovereigns. One of them's the boss. And that's the Lord. I began this morning by saying we're not deists in this church. We believe in a personal sovereign God who does according to his good will and his good pleasure. And we trust him for that every day of our life. Lord, be with me this day. Lord, be with me this night. Watch over me. Keep me. Help me to remain submissive to you, to do your will and your good pleasure. And after that day, we just go ahead. It's been a good day. It's going to be all right because it's in the hand of God. Are we to use human instrumentality? We certainly should. Whatever you do, don't attempt to try and pass this traffic out here without just halting up and looking before you step out. Don't just say, well, if God's in it, it's going to happen. I, I don't believe I want to go home with you. You be as careful as you know how to be. And you exercise every precaution you know how to, pre- to exercise. But it's in the hands of a sovereign God who's never, ever, ever made a mistake. I love you. And I'm so glad you're here today. And I hope this has been a message that you can learn from and also will be a message to help you in your daily pursuits of life as well as mine. Let's stand, please, for prayer.